pray one more time. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the privilege that is mine and that is ours to preach and to hear your word in our language. We're mindful that it is a privilege because there are many millions still waiting for a copy of your holy word to be translated in their language. And so we pray this morning for the missionaries who are translating your word for the first time in languages spoken by people who are desperately waiting to hear this good news that we will hear today. Bless them, encourage them, supply their every need, protect them so that everyone, every tribe, language, nation, and tongue will one day hear the precious, glorious words, he's risen, and he's risen for you, and that they will have an opportunity to hear, to repent, and to believe. Now help us not to take for granted this opportunity we have to once again hear the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts, and then quicken our will and submit our wills to your will. May your will be done and not our wills today. For Christ's sake. In Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16, we read these words. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now we pick up the story here for lack of time, but let me recap the 72 verses of chapter 14 of Mark's gospel for you. Just before dawn, Jesus had a rough night, to say the least, and the worst was still to come. While praying on the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley, outside the old city walls of Jerusalem, Jesus knelt down to pray inside a grove of olive trees. While there, just a few weeks ago, we saw some old olive trees purported to be as old as these Gospels. While Jesus prayed, his disciples fell asleep. But his prayers intensified to the point of sweating drops of blood. Jesus could hardly bear the thought of becoming sin for us and being rejected by God the Father. And then he was betrayed by Judas with a kiss and was arrested and taken to the high priest's home. There, the religious council of Jerusalem, known as the Sanhedrin, had an illegal trial of Jesus with trumped-up charges with bribed witnesses who couldn't even get their lies together. The religious leaders felt threatened by Jesus' popularity, and they thought that they would lose their own power, their own influence, and their own authority to Jesus. They were insecure, and they were jealous. After the mock trial, they determined to convict him of blasphemy because Jesus admitted that he was the Christ, the very son of the living God. They spat on him, they blindfolded him, they punched him, and they mocked him. It was a rough night, and the worst was yet to come. Now it's early in the morning, and our Lord Jesus is being dragged to another sham trial, only this time before the Roman prelate, Pilate. He was tired, was he not? You bet he was. Did he sleep? Probably not very much. Was he very comfortable in his bed? Probably not. Was he hungry? I wouldn't doubt it. He most likely was already sore and bruised from the beating he endured the night before. But now what do you think was going through Jesus' mind as he silently walked to Pilate's palace on what was to be that very early morning of his crucifixion? 
What was his mood like, do you think? Was he sad? Was he fearful? Was he resentful or hateful of his persecutors? Was he muttering under his breath? Was he thinking of you and me, still loving us, though we were not yet in this world? Perhaps the fact that he kept walking, bound and determined to continue his death march, is a sign of his love for us. Walter Wangerin imagined Jesus saying, quote, I have to leave you to love you best. I go where I want you never to go, precisely because I love you. Now back to Pilate. Do you ever wonder why they brought Jesus to Pilate? Why not kill him themselves, the Jews? The Jews were under Roman rule, and the Romans reserved for themselves the right to carry out capital punishment. And so the Jews needed Pilate. They, they needed a charge beyond blasphemy because the Romans didn't much care about J Jewish religious laws. They needed a Roman offense worthy of capital punishment. And that's why they brought him to accuse him before Pilate after their sham trial where they concluded of his blasphemy, they would convict him to death according to Jewish law. And yet right out of the gate, Pilate asked Jesus about Jewish religious and political rule. Are you king of the Jews? Verse 2, Pilate asked. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. Verse 3, verse 4. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. When the Jews realized that Pilate was less inclined to convict Jesus for admitting to being king of the Jews as a capital offense, they now begin to accuse him of many other things, hoping that something would stick, some charge would stick. And yet again, Pilate gave Jesus the opportunity to, to defend himself. Jesus was not afforded a public defender like in our wonderful country. If you can't afford a lawyer, you get a public defender that will defend you in a court of law paid by taxpayers' money. Jesus did not have that privilege. But to Pilate's astonishment, Jesus does not defend himself against the trumped-up lies. We see here a familiar pattern we saw in his first trial in chapter 14. The only accusation he admits to is his kingship and his deity. But why now? Why here? How many times do we see Jesus in the early years of his ministry telling his disciples to shut up about his connection to deity and to his messiahship? But now, all of a sudden, the time has come. His time has come to be revealed for who he really is. But it seems to us such an odd time and an odd audience to reveal your kingship and divinity. It seems too late and too ineffective. But then again, we are reminded his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. His silence on the many other charges also seems alarming to Pilate, who might have listened to his defense and found him innocent, which is the reason why the Bible says Pilate was amazed at his silence. Jesus' silence and this silence, Jesus is signaling that both he and his accusers have the same goal, his death. 
only their motive is evil. His is a pure, willing obedience to the Father. Verse 6, now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison for the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do what you want me, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. But why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Beware of leaders who are people pleasers. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Have you ever wondered why Pilate, this powerful Roman ruler, seemed so conciliatory to the people? as if to let them feel in charge of the outcome, the fate of this man, Jesus. See, Pilate's number one job was to maintain the peace among the Roman-occupied Jews and ensure that Rome gets its share of taxes. That was his job. He knew that these people were fickle and easily worked up into a mob rebellion, and so he had to play the role of a politician, to avoid having to use his military might to put down a mob rebellion. The annual release of a Jewish prisoner was an annual Passover amnesty tradition. But now look at the choice that the people have before them. The one single and very stark choice before the people. Jesus or Barabbas? In studying for this message, it dawned on me that the meaning of Barabbas' name. His name means son of a father or son of fathers. The word bar meaning son of and abbas meaning father. Some of you come from countries where the Abba means father, or Baba. In many African countries, it's Baba, means father or grandfather. In the Middle Eastern world, it's Abba. If you have Jewish friends with sons, they celebrate their bar mitzvah, usually at 13. Bar mitzvah means the son of the covenant. Then in the book of Acts, you can read about Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. And so here's the choice before the people on that fateful day. They have a choice to release the son of an earthly father or the son of the heavenly father. What a choice. And they seem to have no clue of the significance of the choice that is before them. Sometimes I wonder if even the church today knows the choice that is before us. Divinity or humanity? The Jewish people thought that they had a merely external choice. But do you realize that it was an internal one? It's really a choice between the human nature or the divine nature. The human nature... Barabbas, the divine nature, Jesus. Those of us who believe now have both natures warring within our souls, don't we? 
And every day we have a choice whether to crucify the flesh and live and walk in the divine nature or to crucify Christ all over again and to live and walk in this old sinful flesh which, from which we were gloriously saved. This is the timeless choice facing the unbelieving world today. The choice we make reveal our true character. Let us beware of the mob mentality that sometimes infects the church. Notice when Pilate first asks, what is to be done with Jesus? The crowd yells, crucify him. But then Pilate asks, why? Which is his job as the judge of the court, the Roman court. They must have a good reason because as wicked as Rome was, they had some measure of justice about them. And no one was crucified without reason. So he asks the crowd for the reason that they yell, crucify. What crime did he commit that is worthy of this brutal death punishment of crucifixion? And the crowd responds in greater fervor and foment. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Walter Wangerin points out, you see, the mob mentality hates for no other reason but itself. Mob rage requires no rationale, no proof, no logic to support it. That's why you must beware of the mob mentality. This is the sin nature's natural response before a holy God. One question we should ask is this. Were our voices heard among the screams for Jesus' blood that day? Most likely, yes, if we're honest. You see, we, like them desired the death of Christ in order to preserve our own sinful way of life and complete control of our lives. We want control of the things that we must control. Our personal image, what we do in the bedroom, what we do with our phones and our computers, what we consume, how we dress, we want to control that. We don't want anybody telling us, we're grown, folks. You don't tell me what to do. I'm grown. Tell me how to live my life. I'm not in my, I don't live in my mama's house no more. Pay my own bills. I'm grown. But here's the divine irony. Christ, like us, desired his own death, too. By a mercy that we cannot comprehend, we cannot comprehend. Christ accepted our evil intent to save our very own lives. Here's another irony that Wangerman insightfully points out. The crowd ruled by mob mentality destroyed Christ by crucifixion. At the same time, Christ destroyed the crowd by loving them supremely well and calling them by name one by one in his crucifixion. He called them out of slavery to sin and into a glorious personal relationship with their creator God, he restored their individual personhood despite the fact that they ran headlong with the crowd and absorbed into the crowd mob mentality. The mob crucified Jesus, but Jesus crucified the crowd by his crucifixion. And then begins to call them out one by one 
to put faith in him and to be forgiven and to have a personal relationship with Christ. Where there is divine relationship with each soul, there is no crowd, only holy personal communion. But Christ had to die first. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the place, the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers, and they put a purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya in North Africa, this man Simon, this African from Africa, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and you can go there and see it today as we did just a few weeks ago. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh and he did not take it. Then they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which, what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Jesus always practiced what he preached. And here there is no exception. Let me read for you an excerpt from Wangerin in his book, Reliving the Passion. Now the soldiers led him away inside the palace, the place called the Praetorium. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. And they called together the whole battalion, some 600 soldiers, auxiliary troops recruited from the non-Jewish peoples of Palestine. Recreation, they cried, a little R&R. &R. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus has already been scourged with the flagellum. His back is bleeding. And when they pull a purple cloak across his shoulders, the blood soaks through. They weave a crown from the thorn branches of the nearby shrub. They stick this to his head, his brow, and his scalp. Again, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them who persecute you. The soldiers begin to salute him in a raucous mockery of high office, hooting, Hail, you king of the Jews! <laughs> Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? And if you salute your friends alone, what more are you doing than others? Even sinners do the same. And they strike his head with a reed, pitiful sign for a scepter, Jesus says, judge not and you will not be judged. And they turn and spit on him. Jesus says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. And they kneel down in grinning homage to him. Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. And when they have grown weary of the game, they strip him of the purple cloak, a mantle belonging to some nameless Roman soldier, and put his own clothes on him. And Jesus says, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you, and so those who led him into the palace now lead him out again to crucify him. Verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. 
They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and the other on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself, why don't you? In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't even save himself? Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe in him. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came into the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And one man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it up on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now let's leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord Jesus begged his heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, he, he begged to let this cup of excruciating suffering pass over him. After all, it was Passover, and the loud bleeding of sheep could be heard as tens of thousands of them were being slaughtered for the Jewish religious sacrificial ritual in the temple of Passover, but God the Father would not let this cup of torturous death pass over our Lord. Now here on the cross, another cup, another cup of sorts is passed to him. It is a homemade narcotic to help ease his agony of crucifixion. But this time, he, on his own accord, Jesus shook his head and did not allow this cup to touch his mouth. He shook his head and allows this cup to pass. This cup that could possibly wet his dry, dusty, clammy mouth and dull his pain, if ever so slightly even. Now we know. Now we see clearly more of the character of Christ revealed. Not only is his naked body exposed, but now for all the world to see, we are, if we are paying attention, we can see the spirit of Christ willing to suffer, to fully suffer, feeling every ounce of pain with every nerve of his being. And he doesn't do it because of the perverted love of pain, no. But for the supreme love of you and me. He passed up this cup of pain relief because he had another cup to drink. The cup of death for those who would believe. Now let's examine through the mind of Walter Wangerin this cup of death. He says, if death is the end of all we do, then all we do is futile. We may deny death. Indeed, we may be able for a while to ignore our personal dying altogether by attending to the present day. Here we are, and now we are, no need to think what we will or will not be. 
Or we may romanticize our grander passions into something timeless, pieces of ourselves that must last forever, as poets call their verses deathless, as lovers can't conceive such love as theirs to die. We may philosophize our immortality by the arrogant, godlike presumption that simply because we are, and because we are aware that we are, we cannot not be. But if death waits at the end of our lives to end them, it cancels not just the next day, nor just the continuance of living, it swallows the whole life, even back to its beginning. And suddenly we are not as though we never had been. Oh, people. If death defines us so that we who came from nothing also go back to nothing, then death is a worm that curls inside our every act like a parasite, eating the lasting value out of it. But here, history needs a center. But if that center is empty death, strengthless death, it cannot hold. Things fly apart into absurdity, and every deed is hollow. But the Creator God put a cross in the very center of human history to be its center forever. The Son of God, the gift of God, the love of God, the endless light of the self-sufficient God fill the emptiness which was death at our core. People here is eternal life in the very midst of us. Now, therefore, it is the person and the passion of Jesus Christ which defines us. This is the central event. Christ defines us because of him. We no longer we no longer go down to nothing. Our end is the beginning of a perfect union with God, the beginner of everything. God, the beginner of everything. Behold, this is the central event of the whole history. Behold, this is the sun that keeps the planets and bequeaths importance to the peoples that make significant even me and all I do. And they crucified him. The one who makes everything and everyone significant. Him they crucified. It happened. Eternity entered time. They crossed at the cross. We are altogether meaningless except God touch us. And God touched us here at the cross. Now let's consider the mockery of the religious zealots and the suffering Jesus who hung suspended in midair on that Roman cross of crucifixion. Did he deserve to die? Did he deserve the mockery and disdain of the crowds? Did he deserve the rejection of our Heavenly Father? Was he guilty or was he innocent? Once again, Wangerin has a unique insight for our consideration. Well, if he's innocent, the mockery wounds him with tolerable wounds since he can wrap himself in the dignity and self-pity of a misunderstood goodness. If he is innocent, the crucifixion makes him a better man after all, since his sacrifice is the very extremity of selfless love. But if he's guilty, the mockery is accurate and right, and its wounds are an intolerable anguish. Guilty? Is this unthinkable? Or is this thinkable, that Jesus is guilty? No, it is, it is not thinkable. It is as unthinkable as the pain such guilt must cause, but it is true. Who can fathom the grief of the Holy One of God when he must say in his soul, I deserve this? Yet that exactly is the sorrow before us. Maybe none shall see with more terrible clarity the sorrow of our Lord than the Apostle Paul. 
Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul does not write to bear our guilt as though a good man became better by submitting himself for our punishment. Instead, Paul writes, God made him to be sin. Jesus has become a bad man. The worst of all men. The badness, in fact, of all men and all women and all children together for all eternity. For all human history. Paul does not write, to bear our sin as though Jesus and sin are essentially separate things and one await upon the other for a while. No, no. But to be sin. Jesus is sin. He is the thing itself. Jesus has become the rebellion of humankind against its God. He is therefore rightly crucified. He bows before his deserving. And there is nothing to ease his sorrow. No, not even some sweet internal sense of innocence. However mistaken the motives of his enemies, Jesus belongs on the cross because sin deserves what sin requires. The complete judicial damnation of the deity. Behold then and see a sorrow unlike other sorrow in the universe. That right now Jesus hates himself with an unyielding hatred. He is in his own eyes vile. He cannot console himself with the goodness of his sacrifice or the wickedness of his detractors and passerbys. Not the priest or the criminals, because they are right. Absolutely right. The wicked ones are right. And this is perhaps the second bitterest swallow in the cup of suffering that he drinks. But there's worse to come. Now let's move on to our final and most hope-filled portion of this historical account of the suffering, the death, and now glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he lives, we have so much hope, so much potential, and so much joy. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Come closer with me. Come closer and look with me into the face of our Lord Jesus. After he has breathed his last painful breath. Are his eyes closed? Or are they open? Are they opened with the blank stare of the dead? doesn't matter really. Either way, he is still dead. The windows of his eyes are now shut. And Christ is shut out of heaven and has descended into hell. But now notice carefully. When the windows of the eyes of Christ are shut, Whose eyes are immediately open? The sinner in charge of overseeing his gruesome death, that Roman centurion's eyes. The windows of his eyes are open. Once again, divine irony meets the reality of human depravity, the cross. These two cross at the cross. Death's, Christ's death is our life. His unseeing is our seeing. His darkness is our light. 
His solitude and separation from the Father is our communion with the Father. How can this be? This is simply too much, too overwhelming to take in. But it is the unavoidable truth. Verse 40, some women were watching from a distance among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger, and then of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his need. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. They were also there. And it was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, and so evening approached. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself awaiting for the kingdom of God, he, bent, he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Think about the courage that that took. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead and summoning the centurion. He asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth. He took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb, cut out of the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early on that first day, first day of the week, Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? If you go to Israel today, you can go to the garden tomb. And it's just as it's described in scripture. You have Golgotha, Skull Hill, the hill that looks like you're looking at a skull. And right next to it, where Jesus was crucified in Skull Hill, is this garden tomb. It's truly a beautiful garden. And in there, cut out of the limestone hillside, is a tomb where, with shelves, rock-hewn shelves, where bodies could be laid. And you can see the, the trench in the rock where the stone would have been rolled over the entrance to the tomb. And you can go and actually look in the tomb today. And hallelujah, <laughs> it's empty. It's empty. It's still empty. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. Chill out, lady. Relax. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. But he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Best news in all of history. Go tell his disciples and Peter. You know why it's and Peter, right? Because Peter vehemently denied with all the boldness and the holiness that he could. Jesus, I ain't never going to deny you. I'll be right there to the end. If they crucify you, they're going to have to... Do it through me. They're going to have to nail my body to your body to get to you. And Jesus just looked at him and said, really? <laughs> really? Really? Yeah! I'll be there. I'm your man. I got you. Before the rooster crows, Twice, you're going to deny me thrice. But even here, we see the amazing grace of God in these two words. Tell his disciples and Peter. <laughs> Tell him so that he can experience the grace and the forgiveness of God. Because Peter, you know, when that cock crowed just as Jesus predicted and, and he was acting just as Jesus predicted, the coward that he truly was, 
you know that he thought about suicide. You know that he thought about going back to fishing. You know that all his hopes was dashed and all his dreams were shattered to one day reign and rule with Christ. So the angel got a word for Peter through Mary and the other woman. Go tell all the disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you're going to see him just as he told you. And then trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were so afraid. When Jesus rose early on that first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary. Mary Magdalene. Now you know why she is in scripture? Again, at this juncture, it's for all of you women. It's for all of you women who thinks, those of you who think that this church Christianity, God's thing, is all about the men and male leadership and men are the most important and us women are nothing to be considered. When you listen to those who mock Christianity and who thinks that it's just like any other place in society where women are considered less than, you need to come to this passage where Jesus dignified women like no other place in history. He went first to Mary Magdalene. And not because Mary was some noble, aristocrat, godly woman. Oh, she was now, but not when he met her. She was possessed by demons that had to be cast out of her. He went first appeared first. The first appearance of the risen Christ was to this woman, not to his male disciples that he called and poured himself into to follow him. So women, don't be deceived by detractors of Christianity that you are, you don't have a place in God's kingdom and in his church that is a place of honor and respect. She went and told those who had been with him and those who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had, been seen, she had seen him, they, they didn't believe it. Just like many men today don't believe you women when you speak your truth. But not Jesus. In death, the spirit of Christ has quickened many who were there, lingering at the cross and then at the tomb and then hunkering down for fear of their lives in upper rooms all over Jerusalem. Verse 12, after Jesus had appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country, they returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Women, there's equal opportunity offense to the men. Sometimes we're not believed either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And so he said to them, go, go now, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And whoever believes and is baptized, what? Will be saved. But whoever does not believe, you will remain in your sin and be condemned. There is no excuse not to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's none. No one will stand before 
Christ in heaven on that judgment day and say, I have an excuse why I didn't believe. There is zero. And the reason, among the reasons that there is zero excuse is because Christ has commissioned his church to pick up the trumpet and to tell our story, to share the good news of the gospel of how we have been changed. So because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future, my life is worth living today for him. Remember the old Gaither song? That took those words. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Isn't that exciting? Praise the Lord. Praise the God. He lives. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask the choir to come up one more time and close out our service with Hallelujah, salvation and glory. Would you come? Father, thank you so much for your word that inspires us, informs us, teaches us, rebukes us concerning the truth of your resurrection. God, I pray that you would seal these truths in our hearts, that you would loosen our tongues, that we might never be ashamed to tell our story that because you live not only in heaven but inside our hearts you're worthy of our praise you're worthy of our testimony oh God help us to be your witnesses here in Chicago and throughout Illinois and America and to the uttermost parts of the world God may we go wherever you send us at whatever the cost oh God May we be your witnesses because we have been transformed by your grace. We have been lifted by your mercy. We have been consumed by your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, if y'all know this song, anybody from UBC way back know this song, come on up here and sing.